1: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author Sam Baker. My guest today is one of the most intelligent, thoughtful people I've ever interviewed. Writer and academic Elif Shafak has written 19 books and 12 novels and been shortlisted for countless literary prizes, including the Booker Prize. Known for her bravery and outspokenness, she has almost two million followers on social media and is the best-selling female novelist in Turkey, a country to which she has been unable to return for the past five years after being put on trial for, amongst other things, insulting Turkishness.
2: There's nothing on paper that says I can't go back, but I don't feel comfortable. I have been you know, put on trial,
1: prosecuted, investigated because of my fiction. Her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees, about the partition of Cyprus is also about love, longing, exile, and the environment. I think it might be the most beautiful things she's ever written, but you'll have to judge for yourself. Elif talks about what home means to her, the two very different women who made her, the importance of lifelong learning, and why menopause signals the end of Iip. That's a shame to you and me. Oh, and being a middle-aged metalhead. <laughs> I wish you we were in the same room right now. Oh, I know, I know. I didn't
2: get a chance to tell you how much your book, you know, what it meant to me, how inspiring it was to me, and in a way how it found me at the right time. You know, I'm going That's through amazing. lots of changes myself, so I found it very brave, but also so candid, you know, so inspiring. Really, really thank you for writing it.
1: Oh, thank you, Mm -hmm. relief. That's just made my day because I I really wanted to write the book that I wish that I could have found, Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm,
1: you know, mm -hmm. in my late forties when I was exactly yeah coming up against everything and Mm -hmm. just not really knowing what was going on, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know. mm -hmm. Menopause, yes, but it's so much more than that, isn't it?
2: So much more, right? I mean, the entire journey. The changes physical, psychological, mental. So we don't have enough knowledge. It's just unbelievable. It affects the lives of every woman, and yet we're hungry for knowledge. I found your your book really, really eye-opening. And I really believe it should be translated into many languages.
1: I'm not quite sure where to start with that. It hasn't been translated at all yet. Be. So oh that's amazing. Thank you. I'm so I'm so glad. Um so Elif, could you start by telling me a bit about where you are right now so that the listeners get a picture for where you are speaking from?
2: I'm speaking from home. And of course, where is home is a crucial Mm. question in my life. I've always believed that we can have more than one home. London over the years, more and more became my main home. So I have been here throughout the lockdown, this entire tunnel pandemic that we're all going through.
1: Home is it's a strand in all of your writing isn't it do you feel a sense of home anywhere now Yes, I really feel that way. You know, I
2: have that sense of home in this city. And I know this sounds like a cliche to some people, but the very fact that London is so diverse, so multicultural is precious to me. You know, I don't take that diversity for granted. Uh, Unfortunately, there are many cities and countries across the world that have lost that diversity and have never even appreciated it. I come from such a country. And I think by losing our respect for appreciation, of diversity, we have lost a lot. So that side of London, of course, appeals to me, you know, is important to me. As a writer, I've found freedom here, freedom of speech, freedom to write and imagine. All of that strengthens my sense of belonging, But that said, I think anyone who reads my fiction would know that there's a deep attachment to Istanbul, a deep Mm -hmm. sense of longing and maybe absence or rupture, and that's how it is. So I think when you're an immigrant, when you're an outsider, a latecomer, you always carry that sense of absence with you. It's like a void, and it's part of who you are, your existence. How long is it now since you left Turkey? It's been more than five years now. Yeah. Close to six years. Yeah.
1: Since you last went back. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Is that because you feel you can't or you
1: definitely can't?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's difficult to say because there's nothing on paper that says I can't go back, but I don't feel comfortable. I have been, you know, put on trial, prosecuted, investigated because of my fiction so many times. And as you know, Turkey has become over the years more and more authoritarian and a much more difficult environment over the years for writers, journalists, poets, cartoonists. You know, anyone who deals with words or humor can easily find themselves in trouble overnight. You can be demonized in pro-government papers, put on trial, sent into exile or even imprisoned. So that ambiguity itself, I think, creates a fatigue. That's why I I don't feel comfortable. Of course, I'm very attached to the people, the culture, you know, itself. But in terms of politics and politicians, I find it quite depressing.
1: Do you find it less depressing here?
2: (laughs) That's a very good question, actually, because the world is becoming more and more depressing. And I never forget when I first moved to the UK, more than 12 years ago now, this conservative politician telling me, but surely I would never, ever compare Turkey with the UK because the UK is so beyond the troubles of places like Turkey. That kind of dualistic way of seeing the world, I think has been and should be shattered to pieces. You know, now we know, especially after 2016, why 2016? Because Trump happened. We've seen the rise of populist movements across Europe. We've seen Brexit, this entire Brexit saga unfolding. I think now we know better and we know that there's no such thing thing as solid lands, you know, where everything is safe and sound, and you don't have to worry about women's rights, LGBTQ rights, or rule of law, versus liquid lands where you have to worry about all these things. There's no such thing. I think we're all living through liquid times. And in that sense, you know, in any country, democracy can start to backslide. And I think in every country, we need to worry about the future of democracy, and we need to be more involved, engaged citizens, therefore.
1: Nomadic's not really quite the right word, is it? But you, you weren't born in Turkey, were you? And so right from a very small child, you've lived all over, haven't you?
2: Yes, and actually I love the word nomadic, you know it's close to my heart. I was born in France actually, in Strasbourg but to Turkish parents Um, however, after a while, after a few years, my parents separated and then legally they got divorced much later, so my father stayed in France and my mother brought me to Turkey, to Ankara, and from this environment in Strasbourg my first house was full of immigrants leftist students, smoking gluas, you know, lots (laughs) of tobacco smoke in the air, dreaming of revolution. From that environment, I was zoomed almost into my grandmother's neighbourhood, into my grandmother's house. This was a very, very conservative, patriarchal and inward-looking neighbourhood in the middle of Ankara. So it was a bit of a culture shock for me. I think I've always felt like an insider-outsider throughout my life for different reasons.
1: You were brought up, really, by two incredibly different women when you were your mother. And your grandmother. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yes, and it was a bit unusual, to be honest, because I was... Uh, raised by a single mom, a working mom, and this neighborhood that I'm talking about was really full of large extended families where the fathers were clearly head of household, you know. That wasn't the case in my upbringing. And I was raised actually by two women, as you pointed out, because when my mom came back to Turkey, because she had married so young, because she had dropped out of university thinking love would be enough, love was the only thing she needed. In life, by the time she came back as a young divorcee, she had no diploma, no career, no money, nothing to fall back on. And usually young women or women in such situations are immediately married off to someone older in such conservative settings. But it was my grandmother who prevented that and who said, no, actually, my daughter should go back to university. She should start all over and graduate and have a diploma, have a career, have choices. In the meantime, I will take care of my grandmother So in a way, I was raised by my grandmother until the age 10, after which my mom graduated with a really high average. She first became a teacher and then became a diplomat. And it changed her life. It changed my life. But I never forget the way my traditional grandmother, my spiritual, less educated. My grandma was not a very well-educated woman, but she was a very wise woman. So I never forget the way she supported her own daughter's independence and education. And I really believe when women do that, the impact of that kind of empowerment and sisterhood goes beyond generations.
1: It's so interesting that, you know, given what your grandmother had been brought up to believe and the life that she had lived, that she kind of went against all of that to insist that your mother lived a different life.
2: Yes. And had she not done this, I don't think my mother would have found the courage to go back to university. It wasn't easy for her, you know. So my grandmother's voice was very important. She was a bit like a matriarch because that's one of the paradoxes of such countries like Turkey. Even though they are clearly very patriarchal in the public space, sometimes within the private space, there are these pockets of matriarchy where older women, usually grandmothers, have a voice, have some kind of power. And my grandmother always used that power to empower other women. Uh, She was a bit of a healer, you know, in her own way. So people would come to visit her and her house was full of magic. It was full of superstitions. I've never forgotten that oral culture and oral storytelling that she has introduced me to. And I've never belittled that world.
1: Oh, there are so many things just in that sentence there that I kind of want to go into. One of the first things I was thinking is, I think it was probably when I last interviewed you, you just made a passing comment that I cheekily put in my book, actually, about how you worried about younger women in Turkey and how it was easier to be an older woman. Well, can you explain why why that was?
2: Because I think In patriarchal societies, of course, gender is a big source of discrimination, no doubt. But also, in many ways, so is age. You know, Mm. there are also these invisible barriers. Uh, Young women, I think, especially young women, find it harder. And women do not get respect until they are deemed to be... Old in the eyes of the society. What does that mean? You have to be defeminized, desexualized in the public eye. It is only then that women earn some kind of respect and, and power and authority. So that has always troubled me. You know, in traditional settings, this is something I have observed. Which means that it is much, much harder for younger women, and we need to empower them especially.
1: It's really interesting because I've spoken to so many women who are are kind of around about our age, older. I mean, I'm a a little bit older than you, who talk about visibility in a patriarchal way into invisibility and having a problem with that. And I wonder whether that's a Western thing. Is it the reverse in Turkey? You know, certain
2: things are universal. I, I think certain patterns, but they're more intensely concentrated the more patriarchal a country is. I mean, I'm not denying the fact that patriarchy is universal. It's just more concentrated in some parts of the world. But the struggle for equality, gender equality, uh, I think the feminist consciousness awareness is needed everywhere, East and West, North and South. But I think what is happening is maybe, and I don't know if you'd agree, as we get older, maybe we care a bit less about what people are going to think about us, say about us, which is not a small concern at, all. If I may give you an example, as an author, I used to go to schools a lot in Turkey, but also in different parts of the Middle East, I had the chance to talk to students from different age groups. And one thing that stayed with me was, if you speak to six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old kids, it's amazing to see how much confidence they have, you know, so much chutzpah and imagination. If you ask in a room full of small children, is there anyone who would like to become an artist someday? So many hands go up. They want to be poets and writers and artists. And at that age, I think girls are just as confident, if not even more confident than boys. But then I would go and visit high schools and everything has changed. Now nobody wants to become a writer anymore. Nobody wants to be called a poet anymore. And Equally striking, I think, is the fact that girls have become timid. They don't want to speak up because we have taught them year after year at school, in the neighborhood, in the family. They should be careful, you know, how you sit, the length of your skirt, you know, your body language. Don't say anything that might be misunderstood and judged by others because you will be stigmatized. You will be labeled. We teach this. And we make our girls lose that inner confidence that they naturally had when they were younger. That really breaks my heart. So I think as we get older, maybe we regain some of the earlier confidence that we had, you know, at the beginning of our lives. Some of us find that confidence earlier through art, through, you know, other forms of expression. Some of us find it later in life. But I think age makes a difference in that sense.
1: No, I totally agree. It's almost like you learn about the box that you're meant to live in somewhere between, you know, five and six and 10, maybe. And then it's only really when you hit your late 40s and 50s, then you start to think, what is this? And why have I accepted this? this time. What was your personal experience of that box?
2: So many boxes, not only one. I think, yeah, I've always had trouble with being pigeonholed and, and pushed into any label or box. As writers, we only want to be writers, don't we? You know, we just want to be storytellers. We don't want the labels. And yet those labels are constantly attached to us. I think I also found it very hard as a bisexual woman in Turkey, you know, to talk about gender and sexuality. The reason why I'm emphasizing this is because many people, of course, understand that it's difficult to question political taboos in Turkey, and that might get you in trouble. But sometimes people do not realize that it is equally challenging to write about sexuality and gender. And I think it's much harder for women writers So I felt the need for that fight and struggle all the way through. If I may add this, being Turkish is a very heavy thing. Being a writer in Turkey is heavier, but being a women writer in Turkey is even heavier. That's how I felt for so many years.
1: It's only quite comparatively recently, wasn't it, that you have spoken about being bisexual. Was that... A long journey to realizing you were bisexual or a long journey to reaching a point where you felt you wanted to speak about it?
2: It was a long journey to be able to talk about it. Actually, I think I have... I thought I had spoken about it in so many different ways in the sense that when you look at all my interviews throughout the years, there's a very clear emphasis there on LGBTQ plus rights, you know, in addition to gender equality. And for me, these are not separable, you know, LGBTQ rights is a big part of my feminism and it breaks my heart sometimes especially in this country when people treat the two as mutually exclusive things because they are not so again as i said when you look at my interviews my speeches my public talks it's always there but most importantly it has always been a big part of my writing to pay attention to minorities to anyone who feels like the other you know to to focus on the periphery rather than the center so whether it's sexual minorities cultural minorities I think I've always, in my own way, tried to give more voice to people whose voices we don't normally hear. But even though that was always there, I never had the courage to say, you know, this is also who I am. This is also my personal journey ever since I was a young girl. That took a long time for me to be able to come to that point because I knew that as soon as I said this publicly, I would get a lot of hatred in Turkey. Uh, I had to deal with a lot of abuse, verbal abuse. And it happened exactly like that. You know, after my TED Talk, my second TED Talk, for days, weeks, and months, that abuse went on nonstop. But the only difference is I was ready to weather that storm. But before, I wasn't. I wish I had the courage to do it before. But it took me a long time to come to that point.
1: I think you'd already weathered quite a lot of abuse for what you'd done, really, before that. Even at that point, were you tempted into silence rather than go through what you knew would be coming?
2: I mean... I didn't see it as a silence because I was writing it in my fiction. And then, of course, you always say to yourself, do I need to also personally you know, talk about it? Is it not enough that I'm writing about it and talking about it in more perhaps universal, general terms? And please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that everybody needs to come out. You know, every story is different. Each and every one of us, life is already difficult enough. So whenever you feel like it, all I can say to anyone who's listening to our conversation right now and might feel something similar, you will come out, you will share your truth and your story whenever is the right time. And only you can judge that. So I'm by no means uh, putting pressure on anyone. But I also know that it makes a difference when we hear each other's voices and we learn each other's stories. It really makes a difference. And you you realise that you're not as lonely as you thought you were.
1: Because you've devoted your career. I mean, when did you start writing? I can't remember when your first novel was.
2: Yeah, actually, my first novel was published at um, a young age. I was in my early 20s. And I started writing fiction, in a way, ever since I was a child. But of course, that's not because I was dreaming of becoming a novelist. I was not because I was, you know, dreaming of being a writer someday. I didn't even know such a thing was possible. There were no writers around me. It was really like walking in, in a dark room, trying to to, you know, find your way without falling down. I needed books because I thought life was very boring. You know, being a lonely (laughs) child raised by a single mom, you know, all these cultural migrations, movements added a lot of layers to my sense of solitude. And I think I found life so boring, but the land of Storyland so colorful and real. I prefer to stay in that zone. So it was almost like an existential need for me. The desire to to devote my life to literature, to books, came to me much later in my early 20s, you know, from from my first novel onwards. I realised this is what I want to do in life, because especially within the canvas of the novel, I feel so free. I can be multiple, you know, I can have multiple belongings. So I associate literature with a profound sense of freedom.
1: It really struck me reading The Island of Missing Trees that one of the big strands that comes through is silence. And I mean one of the main characters, which I'd, I'd like to talk about in a minute, is the fig tree in the garden and in the cafe. But also the hashtag, do you hear me now, when Ada, the teenage girl, lets out the silent scream inside her. And then that becomes viral with people posting pictures of them screaming or silent screaming.
2: I I really appreciate that you, you mentioned this because it really is important to me. I think, you know, as much as I'm drawn to stories, I'm equally drawn to silences. And there's a part of me that wants to understand where are the silences in any society at a given time or who are the people who are feeling silenced. And it's one of the biggest paradoxes of our times, isn't it? You know, we were all supposed to have a bigger voice thanks to digital technologies and in some ways yes but it turned into a cacophony of noises and within that chaos I think so many of us millions of citizens around the world we feel voiceless as if our voices Mm -hmm. are unheard our stories are untold that is a very universal feeling so I wanted to tackle that in the book and hear my voice hear my story I think that's a very existential need because when our voices are not heard, it's almost like you're, you're denied your own truth.
1: Do you feel that you have been personally or has your career really been about pushing back against that?
2: I think so. I hope so, you know, and maybe in an idealistic way. I also sincerely believe that literature is about rehumanizing people who have been dehumanized. Uh, and that is why there's a part of me that is always interested in the stories of minorities people who have been otherized, who have been pushed to the margins, people whose stories have been systematically, deliberately erased and forgotten. How can we bring back? that diversity into our narratives, how can we see truth from multiple angles, have that cognitive flexibility? I think it's a very humbling experience to learn to look at the world through someone else's eyes. And that is why we need literature. Of course, I have a lot of respect for authors who write in a more autobiographical way. And of course, I'm not denying the fact that whatever we write about, there are always autobiographical elements in all our work. But that said, my approach to literature is not necessarily autobiographical. I am much more interested in becoming someone else, someone other than, you know, the self that was given to me by birth. That to me is much more interesting. So I think I perceive literature, if I may use this word, in a more mystical way, in a more transcendental way, to become someone else and then someone else to look at the world through their eyes it's a good intellectual exercise but it's also a good exercise for the soul because it makes us less arrogant and i hope it makes us a bit more humble when was the last time we ever said i don't know We don't say I Mm -hmm. don't know anymore, you know. You can ask me anything, I can ask you anything. If we don't know the answers, we can Google it. And in the next five minutes, we will have something to say about the subject. That doesn't mean I know the subject. So we forgot to embrace and understand our own ignorance. And that is... Very dangerous. I think literature helps us to understand our own ignorance in the kindest way possible. And it's a good thing to become someone else for a few hours, for a few days, just to journey into other people's existence. I find that very valuable and needed in in our deeply troubled world.
1: It is so interesting. I remember when I was working on a magazine and Mm. a new girl had started and I said to her boss, how is she doing? And she said, well, she's good, but the problem is she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I thought that was a bit patronizing. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's so true and it's so important. So important to know what we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I've noticed in this book is it it feels like you have slightly more in the way of older female characters, uh, particularly Miriam mm-hmm. and Costas's mother, but she is quite archetypal and yet not. And I was really interested in that. That seemed to me to be quite new for you,
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. The, the older female character. Who or what inspired them?
2: I mean, I am interested in women's lives and experiences, women from different backgrounds, different age groups, Uh, But your question made me think, you know, uh, and I really appreciate it. Maybe as I'm getting older, I also feel more comfortable about writing older women's experiences. But what really, really intrigues me is this generational continuity, but also discontinuity. You know, the things we cannot talk about easily in our families, the stories, but also the silences. What is transmitted from grandmothers to daughters to granddaughters and what gets lost in the way and why.
1: So that is something that intrigues me profoundly. Has there been much talking in your family or are there a family of not talkers?
2: There are, I mean, there's storytellers. But at the same time, I was always aware that there were silences. And and also there are silences on my father's side because I grew up without seeing my father, almost not at all. You know, I've seen him very few times throughout my life. So that in itself is a void, is a sense of absence. I have met my half-brothers in my late 20s. Um, and, you know, we haven't spent a childhood together. We could have. That also is an absence. So I think... I was very much aware since an early age onwards of those pockets of silence and absences in families.
1: When we're meeting Miriam, well, when Ada is discovering Miriam, I loved Miriam's description of menopause as, as the end of ayıp, which is shame. Yes,
2: absolutely. That's the word it? of our you know, lives of so many millions of women in Turkey and beyond, ayıp. You know, how you sit, Um, close your legs, make sure the length of your skirt is suitable. You don't show your, you know, arms, the sleeves and etc. You know, everything is ayyub, ayyub. Don't swear, don't use bad words, don't laugh out loud. Watch out your own laughter, monitor it. I cannot give you you, know, you you enough details and examples, but full of cases of ayub. And I think when you say, okay, no more shame, no more Ayyub, and when we manage to free ourselves as best as we can, as radically as we can, from all those patriarchal teachings and sexist teachings, that is when we start a new life and a new journey. And I think Mariam in the book is precisely at that point in her life
1: yeah I love the way it's illustrated by her bringing you know a huge suitcase of clothes that she's literally never worn, yeah because she's felt like she can't. they're too colorful, they're too loud, they're too. Yeah, yeah, not who she is, but she's carried them with her across you know thousands of miles. So, to...
2: yes, because in England, I mean, she's coming from Cyprus, and uh, in England, nobody's going to judge her, e- even if she wears these very colorful pistachio green, coral red skirts or dresses. To be honest, I sympathize with Mariam a lot. Um, I'm a bit like Mariam too in my inability to wear colors, I love colorful accessories, yeah. however. When I look at my own journey, I've been wearing black, black, black for so many years. I I love the color black. I love wearing black. But it's also, I have to admit, an inability to wear colors. And I've always admired women who are so comfortable in their own body, you know, in their own colors. And they radiate that energy. There's a part of me that envies that. So I really sympathize with Mariam's
1: contradictions. Can you imagine yourself branching out?
2: <laughs> we are branching out as women, aren't we? I mean, we are renewing ourselves, and that's the beauty, I think, of life. We learn at every every step of the journey, like the phases of the moon. So, like trees, uh, we are. But that doesn't mean always our roots are in the ground. Sometimes our roots are up in the air, and you know, we're nourished by travels, by migrations, by multiple cultures. I, I really think tree is a wonderful metaphor, particularly for women's lives and experiences. And it's not a coincidence, if I may add, that in Greek mythology and in many mythologies, there's that association between women and trees, arborescent lives.
1: Always in your writing, the place plays a massive role is a character, almost. You know, this book is exactly the same, but the fig tree is such a dominant character and such a strong voice and I just she it is she It, it is she yes she's a fig tree who doesn't need to be near a male tree to exactly bear fruit yeah yeah she's the most incredible character wise and obviously 140 years old so (laughs) Um, there's an interesting line and I think it's the tree who said it like do you always have to calculate how old someone is by adding up the months or the years or are there instances in which it's actually wiser to offset the passages of time yes I really like that idea
2: Mm -hmm. thank you maybe it resonates with us now more than ever before now that we're going through this pandemic in some ways it feels like a lost year but of course we have learned a lot gained a lot maybe we are learning how to revise rethink our values our priorities so so important and we realize more and more it's the immaterial things that actually really matter in life such as love such as friendships such as sisterhood such as sitting under a tree with a book in your hands you know that feels like a luxury now but at the same time There are years or months or chunks of time in our lives that has taken away something from us. So I want to think about time in a much more complicated way and this is a book that compares human time with tree time. Human time is always linear. It's supposed to be progressive. I mean, tomorrow has to be more developed than yesterday. It's an illusion, of course, but we cling to that illusion from the past and realize that the past continues to breathe within the present moment. So it's a much wiser way of reading time and history and life. And I wanted to compare human time with tree time in this snow. What does age mean to you? Age, learning, I guess, you know, constant learning. Of course, you know, we stop thinking of ourselves as students the moment we graduate from schools or universities. But to be a student the whole time. It's lifelong learning. It's something we don't encourage enough. You know, just constantly learn from books, from other people, from other disciplines. We don't for instance encourage interdisciplinary reading. I have met so many readers, and I'm sorry to say but it's usually male readers who say this. They come to me and they say I like what you said but I don't read fiction. I, I don't have time for fiction. I read politics. I read history. I read philosophy because I want to understand the world. I read economy. My wife Reads fiction. So that kind of compartmentalization, you know, why are we doing this? Inside fiction, there's everything. Inside fiction, there's philosophy, there's psychology, there is history, and there's so much more. But I think more importantly, we need to read across the board, both fiction and nonfiction, East and West. And we learn more, actually, when we dare to learn from places that we know nothing about. So I think when a novelist becomes interested in neuroscience, or if a scientist becomes interested in poetry, if a poet shows interest in film theory, or a director, film director, becomes interested in political philosophy, you know, the moment we step into another zone outside of our comfort zones... That is when we learn better. So I'm a big believer in eclectic reading lists and interdisciplinary conversations.
1: It just reminded me of something I heard you say on a podcast I was listening to this morning about how in Turkey, a a reader who has very entrenched political views will then say to you, oh, I loved this character, you know, and this character was queer or trans or, but in a a nonfiction life, that reader wouldn't give that person the time of day. Absolutely. in fiction, that was the person that they warmed to the most.
2: Yeah, indeed. And, you know, I experienced this all the time. And I thought about it a lot over the years, because it happens exactly as you described, sometimes in a more blunt way, because someone who has lots of cliches and stereotypes and biases against, for instance, minorities, against Jews, against Armenians, Greeks, Kurds, because these are the main minorities in Turkey, you know, they come to me and they say, this is the character that I love the most. And then I realize that the character they're talking about is Armenian or Jewish or Greek or Kurdish. Equally, I have lots of readers who are not only xenophobic, but also homophobic or transphobic. And then they come and they say, I love this character. And maybe the character they're talking about is trans or gay or bisexual. So how is it possible that people who are full of so many cliches in their daily life in the public space, when they are reading a novel, when they become alone, when they go into that inner garden, they become relatively a little bit more ready to connect with their other. I don't think it's a coincidence. I really believe it's the power of literature because we're constantly in the company of other people. We are affected by their energy. It's not a coincidence that fascism, authoritarianism, all kinds of totalitarianism, they rely on collective energy. You know, you have to chant at the same time, this unified energy that erases individuality. So I think what the art of storytelling does is to restore our individuality, but not in a selfish way, in a way that helps us to realize actually the other is my brother, the other is my sister, I am the other, you know, we're not that different. So those connections, those underground tunnels that literature
1: excavates
2: and helps us to connect with humankind, I think are very, very precious.
1: Can I ask you, what do you think is your emotional age? It's difficult
2: to judge for me. I mean, I am someone who, really thinks a lot about emotions and emotional intelligence I don't belittle that at all and it troubles me to see how emotions are associated with weakness and I think that puts a lot of pressure on women particularly on women in fields that are traditionally male-dominated today unfortunately in the age of populism it's usually demagogues populist demagogues who understand the power of emotions better mm. than their liberal counterparts you know and they speak that directly to people's emotions. So all I'm trying to say is in a nutshell, I think this is the age of anxiety. There's an existential angst, which is deepened by the pandemic and its consequences. There's a lot of uncertainty, ambiguity. There's fear, there's anger, frustration, all of which is actually quite normal. If we don't find ourselves from time to time overwhelmed with these seemingly negative emotions, maybe we're not really following what's happening in the world. The challenge is, once we recognize and embrace our emotions, how do I make them a little bit more constructive, a little bit more useful, helpful, not only for myself as an individual, but also for my community and society? Anger is very high energy, and the beginning of anger can be an amazing force. But the problem with anger is it's toxic. After a while, it becomes destructive, repetitive, repetitive. So you need to channel anger into something more helpful, useful. We have to find better ways to channel our anger.
1: What do you do with your anger?
2: I walk and I am a huge fan. Uh, That never changed ever since I was in my early 20s or younger, actually. What I'm trying to say is I'm a big fan of heavy metal music, particularly genres of heavy metal. I love that kind of music, particularly industrial metal gothic symphonic viking pagan <laughs> metalcore thrash metal i i love that music and it's it really helps me to find a calmer energy and i don't believe people who say oh people who listen to this kind of music are you know aggressive actually i've met lots of musicians and fans over the years and many of them not all of course but many of them are really really
1: gentle souls I mean, I knew that about you. I think if I didn't I would be surprised. But I remember the last time I interviewed you and the sound guy said, Oh, do you want to pick some music to lead in? You know, I can't remember what the right description is now. And you said, Have you got any metal? And he was so shocked because he was thinking, Oh, maybe a bit of jazz or
2: <laughs> True. I mean, they don't expect them, you know, middle aged Turkish woman to be a metalhead, but I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's one of my favourite things about you. Um, Can you recommend either a book that's meant a huge amount to you or a book that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend?
2: One book that left a huge impact on me in my own journeys was Orlando, Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Mm. I will never tire of speaking about Orlando. Over the years, I revisited again and again. But that first time was really an eye-opening experience. Until then, I didn't know you could do such things as a writer, that you could go beyond geography and time and gender and, you know, all these constraints that seemed given and static. The way Virginia Woolf treats them in a completely fluid way, that really spoke to me. And that was a liberating experience. Also, as a writer, to see that kind of chutzpah, that she dared to do this, was amazing. So Orlando will always be very special for me. That's
1: brilliant. What one piece of advice would you give to younger women? Please
2: do not worry... I know it's easier said than done, but please do not worry about what others might say about you, how they might judge you. It really, doesn't matter. And try to spend more time with people who support you, encourage you, and who want you to be, you know, successful or happy. I think kindness is contagious. Try to spend more time among people who are kinder to you. That is so important. I really wish I knew this when i was younger and stay away from people as much as you can whose energy just pulls you down we don't need that
1: it can be hard to identify those people can't it in the beginning of
2: course we don't know also what is even more difficult is sometimes we do to ourselves don't we so there's this Mm -hmm. nagging voice that we, Mm. we internalize the gaze of patriarchy. When we are alone on our own, we look in the mirror and we find all the flows and faults in our bodies. Fault according to whom? Flow according to whom, you know? So I, I think when it becomes even more difficult is when we internalize other people's voices and the gaze of the system or the gaze of patriarchy. But to be aware of it, to try to lessen it, even if we can't eradicate it completely, at least to be aware of it, I think is helpful.
1: What's your superpower?
2: I don't have a superpower, but the art that I'm in love with, the art of storytelling, I really believe it has a transformative power. So it's, it's the art of storytelling itself.
1: Name an old bird role model, so an older woman who's inspired you.
2: I think I'll say my grandmother, yeah, yeah, for all the reasons that we have spoken
1: about, yeah. I'm slightly going to go off now, but there's always a strands of superstition and rationality yeah. in a lot of your work. Would you say you are superstitious? You
2: know, I would claim
1: that I'm someone who loves books and literature and knowledge
2: and that I'm more not rational. And then for instance when we meet, I might silently spit in the air without <laughs> you know, as I as I describe in this novel, like Greek women do or Turkish women do. So I catch myself actually doing these little things that I Wouldn't think I would do. So there are superstitions in my life. Maybe I'm not a superstitious person per se. I'm not someone who has a closed mind to the world of superstitions. And actually, uh, there's a line in the book, I don't know if you'll remember, it also talks about how when religions clash, superstitions from different cultures can be surprisingly similar. So you can find very similar superstitions in Ireland, in Wales, you know, in South America, across the Middle East. That to me is mesmerizing. Superstitions and food, those are the two things that do not recognize national borders. And I love that about them.
1: And lastly, how many fucks do you give?
2: You know, I I don't know if I mentioned this to you. To be able to swear in another language is so liberating, you know. I realize I care more and more about my fellow human beings, their stories. I really, I feel moved when I meet people particularly living in not easy circumstances, and yet you realize they have amazing resilience and determination and then you're ashamed of your own little worries and, you know, it gives you a better perspective. But, but we always learn from each other as human beings. But that said, I hear what you're asking. As we get older, you care less about, you know, judgments, maybe things that would pull you down more easily when you were younger. But at the end of the day, I think as writers and artists, we are emotional creatures. I think everybody is emotional. As human beings, we're emotional. But there are people who pretend that they're not. And there are Mm -hmm. people who are more at ease with their emotions. So artists and writers are more tuned into their emotions. And it's okay if it affects us, you know, someone's hurtful words. If that affects us in that moment of time, that's also understandable. The important thing is, can you move on? Can you go beyond that moment? That's the really important thing.
1: That's brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you.
2: Such a privilege to talk to you. I can go on for hours. It's it's really a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,